do remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 53 through 72, which is the end of the chapter. Mark 14, 53 through 72. Before we hear God's Word read, let us go to the Lord asking for His help in understanding this text. More to be desired are your rules than gold, even much fine gold. Use them to inspire a higher estimation, a greater prizing of your word. Through your spirit, we pray, O Father. Amen. Mark 14, 53 through 72. Hear now the word of God. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, for many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them. For you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Then Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me, amen. Such are the bold words of Martin Luther that fueled the work of Reformation in Germany. Words that our hearts proudly claim as part of our heritage. These words were uttered at the Diet of Worms, that gathering of German princes and Roman Catholic officials, to hear Martin Luther's case against Rome 
and its alleged abuse of Scripture and the people of God. Now, months before, Luther's courage was indelibly written by his own pen in letters to many people. To the elector, his supporter, he wrote, You ask me what I shall do if I am called by the emperor. I will go even if I am too sick to stand on my feet. This is no time to think of safety. I must take care that the gospel is not brought into contempt by our fear to confess and seal our teaching with our blood. To his spiritual father, Staupitz, he wrote, This is not the time to cringe, but to cry aloud. When our Lord Jesus Christ is damned, reviled, and blasphemed, I must confess him before men. To another he wrote, This shall be my recantation at Worms. Previously, I said the Pope is the vicar of Christ. I recant. Now I say the Pope is the adversary of Christ and the devil's apostle. Classic Luther. We applaud such courage. We praise such boldness and even pray for the same if the Lord would put us in a similar situation. But as you read the unfolding of events, Luther's firmness of spirit did bend a little bit. Examined by Eck, Luther was asked if the pile of books before him was his. Yes, he plainly replied. He was then asked whether or not to whether or not he wanted to defend them all, or if he cared to reject just a part of them. And Luther says, This touches God and his word. It affects the salvation of souls. Of this Christ said, He who denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father. To say too little or too much would be dangerous. I beg you, give me time to think it over. Everyone was shocked by his delay. Perhaps he himself was quite shocked as well. In fact, if you watch the most recent video presentation of Luther, you see at this point he is arguing with the devil and he's cursing the devil for tempting him to weakness at a time at which he was supposed to confess Christ. As Luther's hands shook at his first mass, so now he trembled even slightly before God, before men, to give an answer. Even brave men buckle under pressure. Even courageous men might crumble before others. Before us in the Word of God here is one of Mark's final sandwiches. If you've just come into this series, Mark loves literary sandwiches. He loves to begin a story, and before he concludes that story, he gives you another account. He gives you another story to say that these are intimately connected and to focus our attention on the middle, on the meat. And this sandwich is another hard-to-swallow sandwich. The two pieces of bread, the bookends here, are Peter's denial. And in the middle, we have the Sanhedrin's trial of Christ. We have Christ's confession of his own identity. In these two accounts, we see both disciple and the council deny Jesus, the Christ. Through these verses, Jesus is rejected by both friend and foe. Still, in the middle, in the meat of this sandwich, Christ is firmly committed to the truth of his identity, even when we are not. If you read all four Gospels, you see that Jesus is examined by the Jews three times, and then by the Romans three times. You could say two trials or a six-phased single trial. But Mark 
doesn't give us all those details. Mark compresses all of that. He doesn't disclose Jesus' pre-examination by Annas, the former high priest. He doesn't distinguish between the trial by night and then the consequent condemnation in the morning. We just get that there is a trial at which Christ is condemned, at which Christ confesses who he is. And so we see the meat first. That's what I want us to focus on initially. It is the confession of Christ in contrast to the contumacy of the council, the Sanhedrin. These verses highlight the willful rebellion of the religious leaders. Jesus is before Caiaphas, the father-in-law of the former high priest Annas. But we must note he's not before Caiaphas alone. He is instead, as Mark tells us, before the whole council, the whole Jewish council. He's before the Supreme Court. All of those religious leaders that matter, he is before them. And he must give his defense before them. This is significant. It highlights the plenary pronouncement or punishment of Jesus. Because we're not talking here about just a single individual or a couple who have been upset by Jesus who are now out to get some justice. We have Jesus against the council, who's acting like the world. This whole council, it is very clear, has already decided the guilt of Jesus before his trial has begun. This is a reality in many judicial cases in our days, isn't it? Especially with social media and people coming to know bits and pieces of information. Take even the recent trial between actors Johnny Depp and Amber Heard and People on either side has pronounced one or the other to be mostly at fault and deserving of punishment. Some sided with death and others sided with herd. I think that's probably the minority on that case. But people had already pronounced you know, one or the other to be mostly at fault, even before all of the evidence that they would have been privy to had come in. We do this all the time. We hear part of the story, just half of the story, and we say, This is it. Here's the judgment. But of course, the Proverbs tell us, let's hear the whole story. First one to speak isn't necessarily the right one. Let's get another person's perspective. These spiritual leaders, however, have made up their minds about Jesus, and they would not budge. They would not change their minds, and no evidence to Jesus' innocence need apply. Jesus has to go. That is their judgment. Not only were they unwilling to reconsider Jesus as the Christ, but they even sought opportunities to ensure his condemnation. They were looking for people to bear false testimony, flatly denying the scripture passage that we read in Deuteronomy 19 earlier. They're going against the law of God as judges of the law of God. What they attempt, that is to say, garnering this false testimony to condemn Jesus, it is a fool's errand like stapling mashed potatoes to a wall. It can't be done. You can't stick any charges against Christ. Shall we expect a spring of water to sprout forth mayonnaise? May it never be. Neither shall we expect fools, however religious they present themselves, to bear the fruit of wisdom and justice. In fact, Proverbs 28.5 says, Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. A verse worth a whole sermon. 
or many. These religious leaders are the evil men who do not understand justice, who are looking at the law of God before them and condemning him. He who is not only innocent but righteous must be killed. These men, even though they think that they are seeking the Lord, are at this point as far as possible from God. And because of their hatred of Jesus, they have to seek some legal basis to cover the condemnation. Because they can't appear unjust. Their condemnation has to have that appearance of godliness, that appearance of justice. And so by application already, we see the necessity to examine our own hearts. Let me ask you, are you looking for reasons to keep rejecting Jesus as the Christ? doesn't matter what the reason is. You might have it or a long list of reasons why you do not accept Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the King overall, as the Redeemer, as the only Redeemer, the only name given under heaven by which man must be saved. doesn't matter what reason you offer, you are fighting in vain. It is a fruitless endeavor to seek reasons for rejecting and to remain in that rejection of Jesus. He gives you no evidence to deny him. He gives you every reason to accept him. Are you bearing false testimony against Jesus? I'm not saying that you are perhaps going out and about and and proclaiming Jesus is not the Christ. But if you haven't bent the knee to Jesus as the Christ, if you haven't said, yes, you are my Lord, you are my Savior, then you are denying Jesus as the Christ. You are bearing false testimony against Jesus with your words, with your thoughts, with your actions. And as Proverbs 19.5 says, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Can you imagine these volunteers who bore false witness against the one who will judge them at the last day? Can you imagine that position to be in? I don't know if they were just looking for a little extra cash. They had their own reasons for not liking Jesus. One does wonder what goes in the mind of many and how the tables have turned upon them if they ended up never turning to Christ. Despite the efforts of these many false witnesses, these many liars, no evidence of condemnation could come forth from their lips. It was impossible for any legitimate charge to stick. But sinners love their sin. It's plain and simple. They love to do their pleasure. They love to pursue their kingdom, their will, their desires. Because, well, they love themselves. This word contumacy might be strange to some of your ears. If you've been in Presbyterian circles for any length of time, you perhaps have heard this. You've seen this if you are reading your book of church order. This is a very common word in Presbyterian polity. It means a willful rebellion. It means a stubborn resistance to authority. It means a contempt of court. 
It is the basis on which a, a given session would excommunicate a member. This is what's given. Said you are, your spirit is contumacious. You are willfully rejecting the sound judgment of the leaders that you had vowed to submit to. The individual refuses to repent, refuses to think according to Scripture, and so resists the session's judgment. Contumacy of spirit is another way of saying a consistently unrepentant heart. That despite the many pleas to repent, to come and discuss, I say, no, I'm moving on. And it is heartbreaking to see such contumacy. Oftentimes, this is seen in cases of discipline as far as uh, adultery is concerned. Adultery is forgivable. Some of you know this. Some of you know people who know this, that they have been forgiven of their adultery. That is not the basis on which anyone would be kicked out of the church, because it is forgivable. But too often, when someone has committed adultery, and then the session learns about it and says, come and and talk with us. We want you to acknowledge that this truly is an offense against God, and we want you to work things out. And in fact, your spouse wants to work things out. The spirit that says, no, I'm done. I'm not, I'm writing off this relationship altogether. And I'm writing off you as elders to have any kind of spiritual oversight. I'm writing you off. That is a contumacious spirit. And woe to the one whose spirit is full of contumacy. Because then you're rejecting spiritual authority, the Lord, given to his under-shepherds. We don't have to rise to that level to see application here. We must all be on our guards. We must all consider our own pet sins. The more that we stroke them, the more we will strengthen them. The more that we cherish these pet sins, the more likely we're going to see a seed of consumacy growing. The more hard-hearted we will get. You must consider ourselves first. We must take that log out of our own eyes first for reasons we might reject Jesus. But we also have an obligation to help others not reject Jesus. Are you equipping yourself to examine the reasons that people might give for rejecting Jesus? This, then, is the area of apologetics and evangelism. Are you building up your arsenal of biblical weapons to use against the warfare, uh, the, the weapons of the devil? Do not let unbelievers off the hook. Do not allow them to be self-deceived. Do you like to be deceived? When you become aware that you were once deceived, you're thankful to the person who helped you see the light. Go ahead, be that rock in their shoe. Consider what, what reasons they have. Don't be a jerk about it. Just, why do you, what, what's the hang-up? Why do you reject Jesus? Why are you not bending the knee? What is it? What do you think about Jesus? Examine their reasons. Inquire. Investigate. 
but also expose these reasons to really be standing on thin ice. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, so that you are not like him yourself. But do answer a fool according to his folly, so that he is not wise in his own eyes. You do not want unbelievers to remain ignorant, to, for them to remain truly foolish, but they think themselves wise. Do them a kindness and expose their supposed wisdom to be the folly that it really is. And although Christ is alone before the council, his courage abides. The son's faith did not faint in the day of adversity. Jesus is, is not before some insignificant servant girl, as Peter is, but he is before the judges of the land. Nevertheless, he who taught with all authority is undaunted by these religious authorities. What could they do to him? Their shoddy work is rather comical, as they are frantically trying to get all the, you know, the right story, you know, all straight. And some got pretty close. Well, he said, I will destroy this temple. Almost. He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days, referring to his own body and his subsequent resurrection. So not exactly. The sun stood silent as the testimony of fools came to nothing. Sometimes it's best just to be silent and to let the fools be shown to be fools. In fact, that's what's going on right now in the world. I'll have more to say about this next Lord's Day evening with reference to Psalm 2. But the world is being shown to be ridiculous, literally laughable, some of the things that are going on. And that's, that's actually the work of the Lord, and it is a kindness. It is a wake-up call. It's a kindness that leads to repentance, Lord willing, and we pray for that. And so the son was silent as a sheep before his shearers, whose swords came out dull from their mouths because they were not sharpened by the sword of the Spirit. In classic irony then, by point of application again, God executes justice in the face of injustice. The son stared injustice in the face. He allowed his father to use wicked men in the satisfaction of his just wrath Do wicked men. He who is the truth could have soundly defeated every last charge leveled against him. He could have said, here, let me, let me see this list of charges, list of complaints. Okay, item one, this is not true for this reason. Item two, not true this reason. Let's go down the list. You could have done that. But for our sake, the silence here of the lamb means salvation for his sheep. And so the almighty father works for justice what unjust men mean for evil. The most misunderstood person who alone could have answered every single false charge, every wrong impression, every downright error, prefers silence in this moment. And by this we are reminded not to cast our pearls before swine. And by this we are exhorted to resist the challenge to address every accusation. Next week I will offer some guidelines for speech versus silence, but you know that temptation. Whenever there is what you think an injustice, 
in a relationship, in misunderstanding, on and on. There's an urge, isn't there, to say, well, that's not true because of this. The urge is not, let me be silent. But at times, that's how we ought to be. I've already said what I need to say. There's no more, no more no point in, in, in saying anything else. Our position has, has remained, hasn't changed. In verses 61 and 62, we see the confession of the Christ. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. So Jesus is not forever silent. There are then times when to speak. The sign is silent until, as Matthew records, Caiaphas compels Christ under oath to give an answer. And this question is strikingly similar to Peter's own confession earlier. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And here the question is, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? This is his hour. This is Jesus' hour, and as such, he courageously confesses his eternal sonship, his eternal messiahship. Yes, I am the Son of God. I'm the only begotten Son of God. Yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the Lord's anointed, the one who is to be established as king in just a few days. And not only this, but he assures them that they will soon see him seated at the Father's right hand, at the right hand of power, come with clouds of heaven. Here he is now speaking of the soon, the impending destruction of the temple, which he spoke at length about in Mark 13. And the irony in this scene is that he has just made a prophecy, but then moments later, some are demanding that he prophesy. You wouldn't want it. You just got one. What do you do with it? You're going to kill the prophet. It's always a bad sign when someone's asking for a sign. The Lord has spoken. Jesus must have been their entertainment. For he who now stands under their judgment just said he would soon be judging the judges. With Jesus' answer, the Jews found the supposed blasphemy that they were looking for all along. There he is. He's a rabble-rouser. He hates the temple. He hates all of us. He's come to remove the whole system that we have devoted our whole lives to. And so the abuse began, and the son's endurance of that abuse. The officials ignore and break Proverbs 17, 26, to impose a fine on a righteous man is not good, nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. Of course, they do more than impose a fine on a righteous man. They strike the noble for his uprightness and subject him, of course, to the cross. Calvin says what we witness here is the Son of God submitting to such abuse and preferring to let himself be bound and trussed up like a common criminal than to summon up a miracle. It is abuse. It is unholy violence. 
and the Lord submits to it to avert the holy violence that will be put upon all those who are outside of Christ. The Lord allowed himself to be spat upon, beaten, slapped, his face covered. Calvin reminds us, no one needs a spit on our faces to bring us before God, blemished and besmirched. We do that all ourselves. The one who is spat upon, then by his spirit, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The greatest abuse of man, the greatest violence that man could ever impose on another is better than what we deserve. This is not to say that abuse or violence is in any way good. Of course not. It's always to be abominated. It always goes against God's care and his command to protect, to provide. But it is to point out here that what man can do to you doesn't hold a candle to the flaming wrath of the Father if you are outside of Christ. You could collect all of the abuse ever perpetrated upon anyone, and that does not measure to the wrath of God upon sin. And so you see the Son's love for you. That he would undergo, even at this point in his road to the cross, that he would undergo such abuse. He would undergo such beatings. And as we'll see next week, such mockery. He certainly does love his father. And he certainly loves all those the father gave him. And we see even here that the Son helps us if we have been the victims of great abuse, if we have been the victims of great violence. Escape if you can. Don't ever hear any of your elders here saying that you should remain in a physically abusive relationship. That just just take it all. And we're here to help if that is the case for any of you. Or if you know someone, we're here to help. We have plans in place. We hate abuse. We hate violence of any kind that is not sanctioned by God's word. But some people, thinking perhaps even of of martyrs in some areas, they, they can't avoid the violence. They can't avoid being victims of great abuse, though they pray for its removal. They can't avoid it. So even here, the Son helps us. Even here, the Son is our sympathetic high priest who's submitting to great violence for you. For whatever suffering you're undergoing, the Lord is present to help. That was an unjust, guilty verdict that is pronounced upon Jesus, the Christ who is innocent, who is righteous. But we see 
a just guilty verdict in the, the, bre- the piece of bread in this narrative. Verse 54, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So as we move from this unjust verdict of guilty, we turn now to true guilt. Hence, the title of the message, Guilty, Guilty. We have two pronouncements of guilty. We're meant to see these two accounts as taking place not sequentially, but simultaneously. As Christ is before the council, so Peter is before others who are questioning him. We see the supposed courage of Peter. The once courageous Peter now follows Jesus, but he does so from a safe distance. At least, he thinks it's a safe distance. Though he follows from this safe distance, he cannot avoid being asked about his associations, about his dealings with this Nazarene, Jesus. And so we see, you also were with Nazarene, Jesus. This is Peter's own trial, as he is questioned by this servant girl, who is a servant to the high priest. She could have recognized him from the week's event of Passover. She knew John, who of course knew Peter, which meant she could have known Peter. She could have seen him walking around the courtyard. This servant girl, whose testimony would not even be admitted in a Jewish court, asks Peter if he is associated with this Nazarene, this Jesus, and he denies it. Not only does he deny it, but he makes her think that she is crazy. I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. This is nonsense that you would even connect us. What gave you any reason to think that? And as the night carries on, more bystanders come and hear Peter at this trial and even connect Peter's Galilean accent to that Galilean who is right now being condemned by those trusty leaders. And one of these bystanders, we're told, was a relative to Malchus. Remember, Malchus was a servant in the garden whose ear Peter had cut off. You can imagine the conversation that relative had with Peter. Hey, didn't you cut off my cousin's ear just a couple hours ago? No, that wasn't, that wasn't me as he wipes the blood off his sword. That's not me. Of course not. This is Peter's time to shine, time to put his mouth where his sword was before. But no. I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And then the rooster crows. And then he denies it again. After it said, this man is one of them. No, I'm not. You guys keep saying it. Stays untrue. And then a third time, connecting the Galilean accent. He says, no. And he begins to cast a curse upon himself. He begins to swear. It's like a, a drunk driver who who's clearly drunk, and he says the officer has pulled him over. No, I've not been drinking. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Of course, I've not been drinking. I swear. Are you sure? Yes, I will go to jail right now if I'm really drunk. I'll, I'll show you. Give me the breathalyzer. Let me do that walk. He's, he's bluffing, isn't he? 
Maybe if he's really confident, the officer will say, fine, I'll take your word for it. And he's even invoking this curse upon himself, this punishment. And Peter is saying, God curse me if I know this man. He's saying, God curse all those who accuse me of knowing this man. Truth of the matter is, God will curse you if you do not know this man. And so Peter stands self-condemned as he takes the Lord's name in vain to dissociate from Christ. And the Lord looked to Peter, as we're told by Luke, then Peter remembered, and then Peter wept. He went off alone and started weeping, the beginning of repentance. Peter, who had left everything for Christ, now leaves Christ for everything. But Christ, who left everything for Peter, will not now betray the man in his greatest need. He will remain steadfast. He will give his life for Peter. Again, we see the love of Christ for his people. He will not let them go. Oh, how we see the need of spiritual courage. We see three R's of application here. Remember this moment. When you are tempted to deny the Christ, remember this moment. This episode, you will regret sacrificing Christ on the altar of the world. But you will not regret giving up the world for Jesus. To be sure, Peter repented. But the memory of his sin stayed with him. How could it not have been with him the rest of his life? How could Paul's past not have been with him his whole life. He regularly refers to it in his writings. And this recollection, as bitter as it is to recall, is actually a grace from God. Sometimes we want to avoid all bad memories. And we do anything we can to not think, to not have these bad memories. God could certainly wipe, uh, have a blank slate for Peter. Could have done that thing in MIV, zap, and don't know the past. Doesn't do that. And I think in heaven, he's not going to do that either. He's not going to remove our memories of our sin. You know all of your heinous sins, which Christ has pardoned you. You know them. And you know all of those heinous sins that people have committed against you. And you know the grace of forgiveness. And you know the grace of his sustaining power in face of that suffering. And so when God recalls these bad memories to your mind, you can thank him. You can thank him for his grace. You don't need to then heap upon guilt and then say, no, try yourself again. No, I'm, I'm guilty still. No, 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 no. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
No more guilt. He, he took your guilty charge. He took it upon himself that you wouldn't be guilty. You're now righteous. You don't need to keep keeping that upon yourself. You're washed. You're clean. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. You've been adopted. You have every holy spiritual blessing in the heavens. This is who you are. You are now a new creature. And as a new creature, you can see these bad memories as God's way of bringing you to himself, of God's power in your weakness, of God's mercy in your suffering. So thank the Lord when they, when they pop up. And pray for strength, especially if you have been the offender. If you're the one who did that grievous, heinous sin, use that memory as a way to, be sh- as a way to, to shudder at that. This is what I did against my Lord. This is one of the things that put him on the cross. And he has forgiven me. I don't want to do that again. I want to follow my Lord. I want, I want, to, I want to obey my Lord. You can pray for that strength. As often as these memories come up, they might be daily. But the Lord's mercies are daily as well. The Lord's grace is up in the morning before you are. Remember this moment. Reinvigorate your strength from Christ. Use this scene as cause for greater spiritual vitality. We do not, fl- we do not fight against flesh and blood, so our w- weapons of warfare are of faith. And we see then a difference between physical courage and spiritual courage. Peter courageously walked on water. He courageously unsheathed his sword on Malchus's face. But then, moments later, denies Jesus. He didn't have that spiritual courage necessary to confess Jesus as the Christ and to confess his own association with Jesus, his rabbi. What makes you spiritually vulnerable in your walk with Christ? If you've not thought about that recently, do so this week. Spend some time this Lord's Day thinking about where you are spiritually vulnerable and the reasons for that. Maybe it's, you're confused by God's providence, by what God has, has been doing as he has been directing your steps. Maybe you're vulnerable because you are overconfident in yourself, ascribing to yourself more ability than, than reality. Maybe it's because you are neglecting prayer. You are right to, be, to, to think yourself spiritually vulnerable if you are neglecting prayer. Maybe you are neglecting the gathering of God's people. I don't really need to be with God's people. But that's God's means. That's one of God's means to strengthen you, to build one another up, to be part of the body. Maybe you have a fear of danger, fear of, fear of man. You don't want unpleasant things to happen to you. Who does? Maybe you're angry at other people, or maybe you're angry at God because he has denied you something that you think you deserve, or because he has given you something that you don't want. Peter had his own situation. He had a wife, he had a mother-in-law, he had Andrew, his younger brother, all living with him. Much was at stake. The pressure was on with him. And perhaps he was thinking of all of those concerns when he said, no, I don't know that man, I don't know what you're talking about. I neither know nor understand what you're saying. 
Curse be upon me if I know him. Examine your heart. Consider where you are tempted to deny Jesus, not just with your words, but with your actions, to, to say that he's, he's not enough in this relationship. He's not enough in this trial. Pray for the strength of faith in the day of adversity. Pray to stay in that relationship, to persevere in that trial. Jesus did not give up on Peter. And then rest in the grace of Christ. We see here that everyone needs saving grace except Jesus, the one who gives the saving grace. Were it not for Jesus' prayer for Peter's preservation, Peter and Judas would be cellmates for all eternity. But praise be to Christ for that compassionate countenance that shone upon Peter's face of shame. Christ still looked at Peter. No doubt Peter wanted to hide. No doubt he wanted to do what Adam and Eve did and, and hide. Don't look at me, Lord. Don't look at me, teacher. I have despised your name. Yes, you have. But my name has not left you. My face, my beautiful countenance has not left you. It still shines upon you. It still blesses you. Such grace. It is not too late for you. I don't know what your background is or what grievous, heinous sins you've committed or what is the hold up for you. But as long as today is called today, there is salvation now. And there is mercy to be found, grace to be found, the throne of God through Jesus Christ alone. Do you desire the Son to look upon you in his beauty, glory, splendor, mercy, steadfast love, forgiveness, cleansing you of your sin, giving you his spirit to strengthen you, to help you to serve him? I hope you do. I hope that's your heart's desire. Because if it is, you turn to Christ for it, he will lavish that upon you. Let's not leave Peter where he is in the text. Soon after the son's ascension, Peter got a second chance. We read it in Acts 4 earlier today, when Peter was before the council. The whole council, just like Jesus was. And here he wasn't before a servant girl. He was commanded to stop preaching the gospel. An apostle is not going to take kindly to a prohibition to preach the gospel. No. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We're not going to stop. The gospel is life-giving. So you can do whatever you want to do. But I will be true to Christ. Neither let us leave Martin Luther where we left him at the start of the sermon. The question before him the second day was, will you recant or are you not, Martin Luther? Many of you are familiar with these words. 
Since your majesty and your lordship desire a simple reply, I will answer, unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason, and not by popes or councils who often contradict themselves, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot, and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And now let us thank the Lord that he has not left us where he found us, but he is working even now to strengthen our spirits that we might confess him, his glorious name, to all men. Amen. Sweeter is your word than honey, even the drippings of the honeycomb, O Lord. Apply this sweet word to our lips as you work your fine work into our hearts ever deeper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.